Brett McKay here, and welcome to another edition of the Art of Manliness podcast. Now, you're probably familiar with the mythological tale of Hercules, or Heracles, as the hero was originally called, from books, comics, and movies. But while Hercules is often rendered as a kind of one-dimensional superhero in popular culture, my guest today argues that he's actually quite a complex character, and that the story of how he completed 12 epic labors has a lot to teach us about endurance, revenge, mental illness, violence, punishment, trauma, bereavement, friendship, love, and masculinity. His name is Lawrence Allison, and he's a forensic psychologist and an expert in interrogation who's created a written and oral retelling of the classic myth. At the start of the show, Lawrence shares how he's been using the story of the 12 labors of Hercules to facilitate reflection and discussion amongst military personnel and first responders and how the labors provide life insights for everyone. We then dig into the details of many of the labors of Hercules, from slaying a lion to cleaning out stables, and discuss what they can teach us about grappling with life's highs and lows and what it means to be a man. After the show's over, check out our show notes at awim.is Hercules. All right, Lawrence Allison, welcome back to the show. Thank you so much for having me again, Brett. It's lovely to be here. So we had you and your wife on the show a year ago to talk about how to build rapport. And you two have a unique perspective on this because you are experts in interrogating criminals and terrorists. And you have to build rapport with these guys to get information from them. And that's episode number 648 for those who want to check that out. You've got a new book out, and it's about the mythical labors of Hercules. Now, this might seem like it's coming out of left field for a guy who's an expert in interrogating terrorists. But the book came out in part because you work in the military world and in the law enforcement world. And you kind of landed on the myth of Hercules as a way to facilitate discussion with military vets and other first responders and and help them communicate with each other, correct? Yeah, well, I I mean, I think you had a, you you know, I listened to your great podcast that you did with Brian Dury's and his work on theater of war, you know, and he was making the point that the Greeks were doing this many years ago. And it was a strategy of telling their young soldiers or a fee-boy you know, myths, legends, and stories, and seeing how they interpreted them in a way that they were able to talk about difficult themes, you know, love, loss, bereavement, friendship, vengeance, you know, senior authorities letting them down, political things, post-traumatic stress, and so on. And these myths and legends are near enough to the reality of what they're dealing with, but far enough away to make it a safe learning environment. So if you look at the story of Hercules, you know, many people think of The Rock or the Disney version or whatever, of him basically being just essentially a strong guy. But the complexity of Hercules as a masculine figure, the more I read into it, the more you can get out of it. And we were finding with with some of these guys, I was doing work with them when we were reading out of labour and saying, how do you interpret that? It was very interesting how each individual saw each labour rather differently. And it was enabling them to talk about topics that otherwise might be a little bit too close to the bone. And as we all know, part of healing is talking, simple as that. So it was a device to get people talking and actually uncover some things about themselves that perhaps some of which was surprising, but perhaps other bits not. So it's a complex, multi-layered, cognitively chewy tale, I think. You know, there's there's no surprise that these... Myths and legends have a really enduring property that are as relevant today as they were, you know, in the sixth century BC. It sounds very like a like a mythopoetic, you know, sort of a Robert Bly, Iron John. You, know, you use a fable or a myth to talk about issues. You know, like, as you said, I think it's useful. What's useful that it's it's detached enough where you're not like it's not too on the nose, but it allows right. the person to 
get the conversation going in a different direction. Exactly, exactly. And I mean, you know, some some of the some of the sort of beats of the story are much more obvious than others. You know, we know that when Hercules returns from war and he's battle scarred and traumatized, Hera, who's always cursed him from birth because she hates the fact that he's born out of Zeus's infidelity makes him hallucinate and see his wife Megara and his children as demons in the house and seeing those kids as demons he attacks them kills them and throws them on a fire and you know there's a very obvious direct links to kind of you know returning war vets finding it very difficult to return to normal life a sort of madness that they can encounter when they're undergoing PTSD and then this sort of redemption story or atonement journey that that Hercules goes on thereafter. And that's what leads to the 12 labors. And what's nice about this book, it's it's well done. It's the stories, you you did a good job making the stories captivating, but succinct. But they're also, Mm -hmm. as you said, they're they're wonderfully illustrated. So very evocative. Yes. And what I found too, as I was reading this, I understood like, well, you know, Lawrence is using this with vets, but as I was reading this, like, well, this is applicable to anybody just going through you know, just mortal existence where things are hard, you're faced with hard decisions, you're faced with setbacks. And each of the labors I found were eliciting questions or reflections for me, who's mm. not a, a military veteran. Yeah, absolutely. I think, you know, the, well, the weird thing is, you know, I sort of gave it, you know, as, as one always does with one's parents, they always want to, you know, they always want a copy of your book or the thing that you've produced or the podcast that you produce. And sometimes they listen and sometimes they read or sometimes they say they've read it and they haven't, but they say it's great. But what was interesting, I gave it to my parents and they said they were reading each of the labors out one per night and they're in their eighties. Right. And, you know, they were interpreting them differently and they really did kind of get into them. So you're right, Brett, it's got, it's got huge resonance. And actually I honestly think without being too sort of, you know, doing my own therapy on air, it really helps me. There was stuff in it that I was reading and that I'm still contemplating now. I mean, I love the ambiguity of it. You know, he really isn't just simply a heroic figure. What is he, a berserker, a madman? Uh, you know, has he got mental health issues? He's a murderer. He's a rapist. He's, he's, you know, he's a very, very complex, nuanced figure. And the journey that you go on in the reading of it or the listening to it will will reveal as much about you probably as it will about him. And you're right as well. I, I've got to give a shout out to David Hitchcock for, for the illustrations. And the weird thing is actually, you know, when I got in touch with David, who's a wonderful illustrator, you know, in the same kind of vein as Sidney Paget that, that, that drew the home stories and Tenniel that, that drew Alice in Wonderland. He really is that old school, wonderful sort of illustrator. And bizarrely, you know, neither he nor I could find a set of 12 illustrations of all 12 labours which I just found weird that it's been around for so long. So it was fantastic working with David and some of the writing and storytelling I geared around what he'd actually produced as an image. But, but yeah, going back to your question, Brett, there's, there's lots in it for everyone. You, you know, it could be as applicable or relevant to children as I think it could be to people that have retired. It's not, it's not the exclusive domain of vets or law enforcement by any means. Well, let's dig into the story and the takeaways from it. And as you said, I think most people, they're probably familiar with the Disney Hercules version, mm-hmm. which as my 10-year-old son, when he wa- we watched it this year, he's like, that's not how the story went. He understood. <laughs> like He understood the Hera dynamic, and that, that, doesn't, that doesn't show up at all yeah. in the, the Disney version. So let's start before the labors of Hercules. That's, I think, that's the backstory that lays the groundwork. Uh-huh. What's the backstory of that? And then how did... I mean, it's a lot of stuff. Like it started off with Her- Hercules' parents. How did those decisions influence mm. the labors of Hercules? 
Well, I mean, I start off with a, a chapter called The Boy That Strangled Snakes. So anyone that's familiar with the story will know that Zeus, I mean, the me- amazing thing about the, the, the Greek gods is they're all capricious, libidinous kind of uh, complex figures. And Zeus, you know, god of the gods is going around, you know, spreading his seed all over the place. And basically he appears in the form of Alcmene's husband and essentially rapes Alcmene, right? So they have a, a child who's part mortal, part god. And Hera, who is Zeus's wife, hence Heracles, or that's where the name Heracles comes from, got changed in the Roman to Hercules. But Hera has this lifelong relationship with Heracles because she curses him from birth. In fact, she tries to prevent his birth. There's a couple of things that she does, but a notable feature is that she puts two snakes in his cot to try and kill him. And, you know, a sort of defining moment in Heracles' life is that he runs into the room to see Heracles in his cot with the two snakes in his hand, having strangled them and kind of laughing. So it's at that point we realise that we're dealing with an unusual child that, you know, in the in the face of death and uncertainty and risk and peril, grabs these two things, kills them and, and endures. So, you know, a common trope in Greek mythology is is bad parenting or abandoned parenting or infidelity. And the child nearly always pays for the sins of the father. And, you know, Hera curses him throughout his life. You know, as I said before, the madness when he returns home and various other labours that he goes through. But that's where the story starts, that, you know, through Zeus's infidelity, we get this interesting character that doesn't quite sit with the gods, doesn't quite sit with the mortals, and in a way casts a somewhat lonely figure Although, as I say, as a child, he's a sort of happy, enduring, robust young man that is able to 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 deal with adversity, even even as an infant. And look, there, there, like you said, there's takeaways from that applicable just to anybody. The idea is our our parents have a big influence on our lives, and their mistakes mm. can influence influence us the rest of our life, even if they're not like proactively trying to curse us. Their decisions can have consequences on our lives for good and for bad. So he he does these twelve labors. Why does Hercules have to do these twelve labors or feats? What's why why is, why that? Well, depending on what source you go to, I mean, sometimes sometimes the murder of his wife and children bizarrely comes after the labors, but you know, in other versions of the story, it comes after the murder. I I saw it as his effort to. Well, actually, interestingly, <laughs> you know, when we get to the labors, different people will read different things into it, but certainly I saw it as his form of atonement or seeking redemption after he'd murdered his family. He has this hallucination, murders his family, goes to the Temple of Apollo, god of truth and prophecy, and uh, seeks atonement and is told by the priestess at the temple to seek out King Eurystheus and complete these labours. And it's an endurance test for him. It's, you know, can he do them? But different people will see his motivation for doing them as rather differently. So, you know, if we take the first labour, the Nemean lion, I mean, in very, very simple sort of terms, the first labour that King Eurystheus sets Heracles is uh, to go and kill the Nemean lion, which has been terrorising people in Nemea. And he chooses to go without weapons. He defeats the lion, he skins the lion, and we've all seen in, you know, the rocks version of of Hercules, he he has the the lion hide as a kind of armour afterwards. And it's quite interesting, when I did the first version of this story with some paramedics and military personnel, I, you know, the, one of the prompts at the end of the sto- of that labour is, okay, so, so, so why did Hercules go without weapons to this fight? And I got two really different answers straight away. One of the paramedics said, well, I think he's on a suicide mission. 
you know he's gone there to basically kill himself and that's his motivation he's got no intention of completing the, the last few labors and actually you know maybe he sees it as fate that he's able to defeat it i spoke to one of the military guys and his view was no no he's gone without weapons because he wants to test himself he wants to test himself as a man without help without weapons with nothing but his bare hands and it's a test of his robustness and rigorousness so you know straight away you start seeing these different pathways or different interpretations of the same story and it just i guess it just depends on your your background so okay well the other prompt too like what what do you make of this what are what are the answers you've got when you've asked that question okay so he he kills the lion skins it mm-hmm. and then he puts the skin on and he wears it for the rest of his labors that he does when you asked me, like, what's going on there? What are some of the responses you get? Well, again, variable, but I guess the, the two main ones that you tend to get is either people will say, well, it's a symbol of his first labor to remind himself that he was successful, that he's never going to forget what he did to the lion and that it was out of respect for the lion. And he's not going to just let the carcass rot in the sun. And then other people will say, well, no, it's a much more practical, functional thing that we know that the lion's hide can't be pierced, it can't be stabbed, and it's his armour. He sees it as the best kind of armour. So so those are the two sort of main responses you get. But again, variable, variable. And actually doesn't necessarily wear them in all the labours, just some of them. Certainly when he gets to the uh, dog of the underworld, Cerberus, he's, he's got it back on again because you've got a three-headed dog trying to rip his arms and fists and forearms off. So, yeah. Well, here, here's a question maybe we should have asked before we started getting into labors. At this point, does Hercules know that he is the son of like of gods? Yes, he knows he knows about his lineage to, to some extent. Okay. I mean, you know, again, I write in the, the, the story, you know, at the age of 15, he can lift a, a cow above his head. So he knows there's something unique and unusual about him. And but again, I mean, if you, if you look at the various different sources, Euripides and the various other sort of early versions of the legend, that they, they will write him differently. Some will make him a much more consciously aware of his lineage and others not. So again, it's very variable. And I, what I was conscious of doing when I was writing this was not feeding the reader too much of what I thought about it. You know, I deliberately, you know, I'm glad you said that it's succinct. You know, they're, they're quite short and punchy, each of the labours. And I think it's for the reader to bring some of themselves and their interpretation to each of the labours and indeed to their understanding of, of the, the central person in the story. So, um, yeah, that was one of my objectives, to, to leave it sufficiently open. The second labour is he has to go kill a hydra. And what's interesting about this one, in the first one, he does it by himself, no weapons. This one, he brings along his nephew. What do you think is going on there? Like when you ask people, like, why, why, why is, why is Hercules' nephew there? What, what, what kind of answers do you get? Hmm. Well, uh, you know, again, if you, if you look at the first four labors, you've got the Nemean lion, the Linnaean hydra, the Aramanthian boar, and the Serenaean hind. They're all, they're all with beasts and they get increasingly sort of complex. The Nemean lion is everything stripped back. It's just, it's just Hercules and the lion. Then we get Iolaus, his nephew, with the hydra. And most people will know that you chop a hydra head off and two grow in its place. And it's, you know, Iolaus is his young nephew and terrified of the hydra, but steps forward and, and provides the solution, cauterizes the stumps so that they don't grow back. You know, then, then you get the Aramanthian boar where you've got these three centaurs that are involved in it. And then the Serenaean hind, you get a god involved in it. 
and you know i i see it again i don't want to give too much away about what i think because again i think the readers need to to see how they see it in those first four labors you're getting increasing complexity if you imagine hercules is at the center of our story then we start seeing some involvement from his family you know a young man that is with him that's helping then we see some community sort of related people that, that give him some local knowledge to help solve the, the riddle of the Aramanthian boar. And then we see Artemis. And, you know, when you give this to various different people, military, law enforcement or not, they will often talk about family when they're, when they're talking about ILS and, and looking after the young people. Then when, they, when we get to the Aramanthian boar, they're talking about helping local communities and local community knowledge and being an intruder in an area that you're not familiar with. Then we, when we get to the Serenaean Hind, they're talking about their bosses, you know, senior people that are assisting them or not or getting in their way of, of their job. So there's a kind of increasing concentric circle of people that you're involved with. And that's how I see it in the, in the first four labours. And that tends to be what, what comes out. You know, Hercules starts to look after ILS. But again, you know, the idea no man is an island. But this comes back to, to bite our hero, of course, later when King Eurystheus says, well, actually, you need to do two more labours because originally there were only 10. He says, but because you've been given too much help. So it's, a you know, the age old idea that, you you know, if you're writing about a heroic figure, you have to really beat them up psychologically and really give them a hard time so that you can see that they're enduring. Yeah, for me. So this is my my response when I read the the Hydra one is like, well, this, this is Hercules being a mentor, right? He, mm-hmm. He's showing his nephew how to be a man. But what's interesting, though, is that his nephew actually taught Hercules something in the process as well. And like, I've noticed that uh, that happens in a really good mentor-mentee relationship. It's symbiotic. It goes both ways. Like the mentor passes on knowledge, uh, information to the person they're mentoring. But then the mentee can also teach the mentor things that they otherwise mm. wouldn't know. Mm. Well, that's interesting. So if I was if I was doing the labors on you, Brett, I might unpack that a bit more. I might say, you know, it seems to me that 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 may be something that is important to you, that you are wise enough to know that your age doesn't preclude you from learning from the young. Obviously, you mentioned earlier your son and, you know, his, you know, his slightly more nuanced view of, of the Disney story not being right. So, you know, I get the sense that that you're the sort of father that's happy to learn from their kids, which is great. I mean, would that be fair to say without sort of now interrogating you, Brett? Like I think we did a bit yeah. last time. <laughs> right. Yeah. You interrogated me last night. No, I would say that's right. I'm always, I love when my uh, kids have these insights and you're like, wow, that's, that's, that's wise and beyond your years. And mm-hmm. I'm always surprised. It's like a pleasant surprise when that happens. Yeah. And I think, you know, as, as a father, you want to be receptive to that because, you know, we're all, we all, we all get older. We're all of our time, aren't we? And our kids are growing up and seeing different things and realizing different things and learning things that we have not yet learned because they're closer to them. So you mentioned one of the other beasts you had to capture was a hind, which is, what is that? Basically a deer, a big giant deer. Yeah. 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 And which doesn't seem like that's that. Well, that's, what's, what's hard about that? You just went hunting, but what, what made it difficult? Like what made it a labor? Yeah. So, so Eurystheus, who is this kind of doughy, pasty, awful, cowardly king that's kind of setting these labors, hoping that each one will kill him. You know, we, so he gives him the lion, hoping he gets torn apart. He gives him the hydra, hoping he'll get, you know, killed by the, the blood of the hydra. And then the Aramanthian boy doesn't think he's going to be able to capture that. So then he realizes, well, look, this guy's mega strong, right? He's, this guy's, he can catch anything. He's, he's, he's brutally strong. Maybe he's going to screw up if we ask him to catch something which is delicate and dainty. And so he, he is hoping that he's going to catch the Serenade hind, but 
but bring it back harmed. He's going to grab it and grab a leg and break it and so on. And and in doing so, annoy Artemis, whose hind it is, you know, the, the goddess of the hunt. So that labour changes him a bit. You know, he's it's fast, it's speedy, and it's delicate. And Eurystheus is hoping that he's going to accidentally kill it. So that's that's the significance of giving him that labour. Things start to change. It's, you know, we can't just keep giving Heracles the same task of essentially beating up some other tough creature. They, they begin to change, the labours change. So that's the challenge of the Serenane hind. How do we catch this thing who, you know, its legs are so delicate, if we grab it too hard, it's going to crush it, kill it, break it, and annoy the goddess. So yeah, he couldn't just rely on brute strength. Right. He had to hit a little, use a little, more, a little cunning. Before you know, before we go on to the next one, let's stick with the the animal, the beast one. The boar is interesting because you say he gets some help from some centaurs, and one of them, one of these centaurs is like an old friend of Hercules. Mm. I think that's actually in the Disney movie, right? Like uh, there's like yeah, the Danny, so, the Danny so DeVito. Yeah, the Danny DeVito character. Right, right, right. But what's interesting there, there's this weird dynamic where there's some other centaurs there that were helping him. And one of the centaurs basically has to give up his immortality to help Hercules complete the labor. Yeah, so I, I took some liberties with the story. There's three centaurs involved in this. There's Pholus, who's Her- Hercules' friend. There's Chiron, who's a kind of sophisticated centaur that smells the meat and the and the wine that they're drinking and nessus who's this rather scruffy scrappy sadistic unpleasant centaur so the three of he's basically saying how do i catch this boar it's too fast and chiron being very wise tells him looks a four-legged animal right chase it up the mountain where the snow's thicker and its belly will get stuck in the snow and in telling this story they're all sort of getting drunk and drinking too much wine and I can't remember who it is in the story, but one of them knocks over the quiver of arrows that were dipped in the Hydra's blood, which we know is toxic. And an arrow happens to fall in Chiron's hoof. And because Chiron is immortal, he's going to die. Well, he's not going to die. He's going he's to be in perpetual pain. So he begs to be killed. He begs to the gods to kill him. And of course, Hera being the sadistic, awful goddess that she is, basically says to Chiron, there's only one person that I will allow to take your life, and that must be Hercules. So now Hercules has to kill the centaur that has advised him and helped him. You know, it can't be Nessus, this horrible, revolting centaur. It has to be the person that's helped him. And again, depending on your interpretation of the story, that that moves us forward. What does that do to Hercules? How does that affect him? What are his responsibilities now? You know, his actions are going to have consequences for people that are around him. So yeah, things change again there. But yeah, so I mean, how did you how did you see that Brett out of interest? What were your sort of interpretations of that one? Uh, so to me, I didn't really focus on the fact that Hercules had to kill. It was more like Hercules had, in a way, kind of had, had to abandon him. Mm-hmm. And I think that's happened. You have people who help you, but then I don't know for whatever reason they can't go on with you. And in order for you to keep going, you I mean you have to leave them behind. And there's a lot of guilt and conflict about that. We're going to take a quick break for your word from our sponsors. Gearheads know that some projects need so many parts, it feels like you need a whole storage unit just to store them. That's what eBay Motors' 122 million parts are for. Think of it as your virtual parts garage. They've always got the right fitment at the right prices. Use the eBay Motors app or visit ebaymotors.com. Let's ride. And now back to the show. So after he fights these mythical beasts, there's the next one. It's the the stables. Yes, yeah, the Augean stables. Yeah. The Augean stables, and you you point out in the book that for the Greeks, when they read this, 
they would say like this is the turning point for Hercules or a turning point. Yeah. So you know, just for uh, for to refresh, like what what what's going on in this labor and how is it different from the previous ones? Okay, so 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 this one has no beast at all. King Eurystheus says, right, okay, there's these stables that are run by a guy called King Orgeus. It's had 30 years of manure in these stables, and you're going to go and clean that up, and you're going to do it in 24 hours. So, you know, to my mind, again, people interpret it in different ways, but this is really about humiliating him, degrading him. This isn't a, a feat of strength. This is to degrade him and to have him sort of wallowing in this, you know, awful sort of fecal matter. And to sort of add insult to injury, King Orgius is a bit like Eurytus in that he's, you know, higher up the hillside, he's very well-to-do, and he won't even sell the dung to the farmers that are beneath him that, that, that might benefit from some of this manure. He's kind of been storing this manure up for 30 years. So Hercules turns up and he says, yeah, well, good luck with that, trying to clean that up in 24 hours. Go for it. And this one, I think, is interesting because it shows that Hercules is not simply a strong man. You know, he's thought about this and he says to the soldier who offers him the spade to start clearing it out, he says, no, I don't need the spade. And the soldier looks at him and thinks, oh, wow, this guy's given up already. But Hercules hasn't given up. He starts to walk up the hill and he goes to an area where two streams meet. And he sees these massive boulders that are holding back the streams, the rivers, from the stables. And with his strength, he pushes those boulders apart. The river re-diverts and sluices out the whole of the stables. And in so doing, not only does it clean the stables, it actually generates manure for the farmers below. And I think the Greeks saw this as a turning point because of two things. One, it showed that Hercules wasn't just a strong man. You know, he was a thinker. He could think laterally. This was a cognitive, you know, really neat bit of lateral thinking. And secondly, he's solving two problems at once, cleaning the stables, but in so doing, providing manure for the, for the communities below. And certainly there's, you know, some suggestion that the Greeks saw this as a turning point because up until that point, you know, maybe there was a sense, well, okay, this guy's killed his wife and children, right? Maybe we want these labours to kill him off. He's a murderer. He's a berserker. He's lost his mind. He's traumatised. He shouldn't be around any longer. Oh, hang on a minute. No, he's thought about other people. He has, going back to the Chiron thing and the Nessus thing, maybe he's learned that his actions have a consequence. And he's, you know, I think he is, he's the everyday man. In fact, when plays were, were, were done of Hercules, there's some suggestion that a lot of the guys that were playing wouldn't necessarily be your regular thespian actor. They were boxers. They were sort of more brutish, common men that had a connection to the working classes and were, you know, seen as put upon. So I think it's a real turning point because he's using his brain, he's lateral thinking, and he's thinking of others. That's at least how I see it. So one thing that I saw as I was reading that, you know, going back to that, like the labor was designed to humiliate him. Mm. Right? He went off, was this conquering hero. And I think that's happened to, happens to everybody in their life at some point. Like they have a period in their, in their life where they have a lot of success and it's like, I did that on my own. But then something happens and you, you lose your job mm. and you're forced to metaphorically clean up manure. You don't want to do it, but you, you know you have to do it. And like Hercules, he, he, it wasn't beneath him, but he decided, well, I'm gonna, if I have to do this, I'm going to make the best of it. Mm. So that's, that's the takeaway I got from it. It was like, it was like he's going into a valley. Like he, he went from being this amazing, strong guy to having just going into this valley but he made the best of it. 
Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. I think I, I think you're right. I think it's a perfectly you know legitimate way to see it. You know, we all we all have times where we're low, don't we? But I think you know. I mean, did you see it as this this point where he's rising a bit, or, or I mean, you sort of seem to be intimating that that he was he accepted the fact that he's going to kind of have to do this. You know. Yeah, yeah. Like he he was he he's capable of doing great things, but now he has to do this this really just sort of donkey job yeah. that no one wants to do. But he he does it anyways. He doesn't. It's not beneath him. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I think. Yeah, I guess what you're saying is, well, I'm not going out there to go and defeat a beast. You know, I'm I'm happy to do this job. I can I can suck that up. Yeah, but, but he's inventive in dealing with it. I get what you're saying. Yeah, hundred yeah. percent. I agree. I agree. And I, I imagine this happening with veterans too. I mean, one thing you hear veterans talk about is when they're in a, a war zone, they feel like competent and they feel like this is what I'm I'm made to do. Uh-huh. I'm I'm excellent at this. So they're like Hercules fighting the beast. And then they come back to civilian life, which is a lot more mundane, mm. a lot more boring. And a lot of them struggle with that. And mm. they have to they have to use, use that lateral thinking. That's interesting. Yeah, I'd never thought of it that way. But but I agree. I think that makes sense. You know, that the coming back is what they struggle with more than the combat bit often. You know, you'll hear stories, I'm sure you've heard them many times, Brett, before where you know, these, these vets are walking around a supermarket. It's like, this is just surreal, you know, but that's yeah. the, the mundane nature of it. And that, that ability to be creative, I guess, and adapt, you know, is, is going to help in that regard. I agree. I think that's, that's an interesting viewpoint for sure. Yeah. So okay, the next labor, he has to fight a bunch of birds. But we're going to talk about that one didn't really call to me for some, whatever reason. <laughs> okay. I'm not sure why. But so yeah. let's, let's move right to the, the Cretan bull. Which- okay. Yeah, that calls to me for some reason. So tell us about the Cretan bull. What was going on? Was this just another bull, like animal, just causing havoc? If we if we sort of talk about the lion as being maybe a suicide mission, this is crazy. Why the hell is he doing it? And then he starts to triumph, and you know, Eurystheus tries to humiliate him with the the Orgean stables. And okay, now we're well, now we're starting to win. You know, our hero seems to be doing pretty well now, and he's pretty ballsy in this one because he just goes up to King Minos. There's this rampaging bull that's destroying everything. And he just takes it head on. You know, it literally is grab the bull by the horns. He knows he hasn't got arms big enough to get grab it around the neck. So, you know, it's pretty simple labor, this straight in there, wham, grabs the bull by the horns, leverages it to the ground by using his body weight on one side, ties it up and brings it back to Eurystheus. It's pretty simple. And I think what is interesting to me about this, because, you know, I do a lot of stuff on Cricklins and decision-making, the warning sign here for me, for Hercules, is this is starting to maybe feel a bit too comfortable and confident. And as we all know, once you start having that, I wouldn't say hubristic sense of self-worth, danger's on the horizon. So, you know, in fact, in the in the bird story, you know, we get some hints that Hera is whispering to Eurythia saying, you know, let him have a few, let him win a few. And it'll be all the more delightful when we crush him. So the bull one is literally a, taking it straight by the horns and getting on with the job and, and, and bringing it back to Eurystheus. And then things start to change slightly after that. Yeah. Yeah. So after that, he has to go corral some mares of Diomedes. Yes. The flesh, flesh-eating mares of Diomedes. Yeah. yeah. So, and he brings along a friend too. He does, yeah. So, so again, you know, we're sort of harking back to the 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 the, the centaur story, and that he brings this younger soldier with him, a guy called Abderus, who's a a farrier and an ostler, deals with horses. And Eurystheus asks him to go and get these 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 horses from this pretty awful, sadistic character called Diomedes. And I, you know, I took some liberties with Diomedes. I made him a kind of very sadistic, aquiline type of character who who 
you know, was treating his horses badly, so that so badly that they hate humans, that the only thing that they are satiated by or calmed by is eating the flesh of human beings. So again, Hercules being Hercules goes straight up to Diomedes and says, look, I want your horses and, you know, I'll fight you for them. And if I win, if you fall to the floor first, I'm going to have them. But if you win, you can have my boat, you can have my Nemean line, you can have my Hydra, you can have all this stuff. So they agreed to fight. And of course, Diomedes being much more slippery, insidious, deceptive, and not as forthright and overt as Hercules, you know, without giving too much of the game away, something goes really badly wrong where we lose Abderus, which again, you know, how responsible is Hercules for this inability to see this deception that Diomedes has, has, has pulled on Hercules. He still triumphs in that he gets the, 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 the horses, but there's significant loss. Yeah, he loses a friend in the process. Yeah, and, has to, and not only does he lose him, but he has to leave him behind. Yeah, and that I, and that's that probably resonates with vets, right? There's like that whole leave no mm. man behind. Even if they're dead, you're going to bring that body back. That's that's been around since ancient Greece. Absolutely, yeah. The, the body has always been an important thing to retrieve. So, you know, two things that we have here: complete mission, which is you know big for soldiers, as we know. You know, really important value system for soldiers is complete the mission, coinciding with huge other sacred value. Two sacred values colliding here. Leave no man behind, complete mission. And when those sacred values collide and you can't have them both, you're going to suffer loss. There's going to be trauma. It's going to be tough. Does this labor elicit a lot of conversation from the vets you talk to? Yeah, it starts to get heavier then, as you can imagine. So, you know, with the Cretan bull, we're, we're seeing triumph. We're seeing perseverance. We're seeing rising. We're seeing efficacy. And now we're seeing... God, we didn't see this coming. This is, why didn't I see this? Why didn't I think outside the box? Why didn't I think a bit more laterally? Why why didn't I consider that people have more sinister motivations? And just because I'm forthright and direct and wear my heart on my sleeve doesn't mean that I should imagine everyone else's. I need to start thinking a bit wider than my own small orbit of, of operating because, again, this isn't just about me. It's going to affect the people around me. So another labor after that, this one's interesting because it's, it requires more cunning and it's kind of weird. He's just, he's supposed to get these apples Uh and in order to get them, he has to talk to Atlas, who's the guy who's holding up the earth. So what, what's going on there? Like how, what, what's the connection between the apples and Atlas? And then what did Hercules have to do to get the apples? Well, so Eurystheus says, well, you know, we need, you're going to need to do two more labors now. So this is this is labor eleven, the apples of Hesperides, and he thinks, well, this is completely impossible because I know that no mortal can even pick these apples. So even if Hercules manages to get past Laden, the the serpent that never sleeps. In fact, there's a couple of different ways of telling this story, but I chose this particular way. So there's a serpent that never sleeps that guards the tree of the apples, and even if he kills that snake, it is physically impossible for a mortal to pick the apples. So Hercules, knowing this, speaks to Atlas, who's a titan, and he knows that the the titan can pick the apples. And basically, he uses a bit of deception on Atlas because he says, look, you know, I will hold up the celestial spheres for you if you can go and pick these these apples. And Atlas, I mean, for people that are aware of their Greek mythology, was cursed to hold the heavens up 
after the Battle of the Titans and the Olympians by Zeus in perpetuity. So Atlas goes, well, this is this is pretty good gig. Go and pick three apples, and this guy's going to take the weight of the skies off me. So, of course, he agrees, goes across to the, the, the Hesperides, picks the apples, and comes back. And he sort of says, well, you know, how, how are you getting on holding that? And, and Hercules says, well, it's pretty tough, really. It's, uh, you know, how, how, how did you manage it? How did you not manage to do your shoulders in? And Atlas says, well, you need to use your legs more effectively. You know, you're not, you're not holding it right. Let me show you, which, of course, then Hercules allows him to take the celestial skies back. Bang, off we go. Thanks for the apples. Ta-ra, see you later. So now we're seeing, you know, has Hercules learned from the mares of Diomedes and the Augean stables and, you know, with Chiron, Pholos and Nessus that you need to realise that other people are going to be deceptive and you need to be a little bit more cunning. You know, I think, again, this is showing some, some degree of learning. Yeah, and I think there's a point in every man's life where you have to, you realize you have to have some kind. And I think we usually typically think of it as negative, but I think it, you can, instead, it doesn't have to be outright lying or being deceptive, but it's a matter of being strategic mm. with your decision making. Yeah, so I mean, it's an interesting one. So, you know, when I was sort of looking at this, I was thinking, well, do I like that about Hercules that he's actually kind of duped this guy? But at the same time, you know, is he only duped him because of Atlas's own hubris, narcissism and willingness to sort of dupe him? You know, when, you, when you're dealing with cunning people, maybe you do have to have a degree of cunning yourself. And actually, technically, you know, Hercules never lied to him. He didn't say he was going to take the heavens forever. So, but I think, I mean, how uncomfortable did you feel with this kind of yeah, I mean, I'm always like, there's always something that's uncomfortable about strategio, like being strategic, because there is an element of any, any type of strategy, there is often an element of deception. Mm. Uh, even if you're not out, outright lying, you are not, you're like withholding information that might benefit the other person to know. And I'm, I'm sure you see this in interrogation, right? Like you're not, you're not going to lie to somebody but you might not say everything you know, and you might use that to your advantage, possibly. Yeah, it's an interesting one. I mean, you know, I think we may have spoken about this last time when we were talking about rapport. I mean, certainly with our interrogators and interviewers, we say you've got to be really direct and honest here, even if you're being honest about the things that you will withhold information on. So, I mean, you know, if you're, if you're interviewing suspects, you're not going to give them all of the forensic information that you have simply because one of your objectives as an interrogator is to test the veracity of their story. So if you give absolutely everything, you are allowing someone that might be lying to you to, you know, make some circuitous story about to explain the reason why their fingerprint is on the knife. So, but, our, you know, going back to the interrogation stuff, we always say to our interrogators, be overt and honest about the fact that there are going to be some things that you withhold. And as long as you're doing that, it doesn't have that kind of pernicious, insidious kind of deception. It's, an, it's you know, you're, you're nailing your, your colours to the mask, but, but not being played for a fool either. You know, you're being upfront about the methods that you're using. But that said, I mean, I think there is something a little bit uncomfortable about this, this particular labour with Hercules, because it, there's something somewhat cunning about it in a slightly roundabout way where he has you know not quite been honest about how he's he's produced it yeah and i'm sure we all face decisions like that i mean going back you're, you're using this to help first responders military guys uh-huh. work through decision making there you're always gonna be faced with decisions that have ethical quandaries where there's competing interests well i got to complete the mission but along the way in order for mm-hmm. me to do that i may have to violate this other 
ethical standard? And what do you do in that situation? Well, that's right. Where, you know, where it always gets difficult, and you know, I'm working with a colleague on this at the moment in relation to our work on decision making. What we find is where, you know, the difference between what we call secular and sacred values. So, a sacred value is a non-negotiable value. You know, we were talking earlier about, you know, sometimes in the in the interviews that we've conducted with soldiers, what you will find is a really sacred, completely non-negotiable value is you do not leave your men behind. But another sacred value might be, and often is with soldiers, you must complete the mission. Now, the problem is where where you where you can't have both of them, what you often end up with is what we call decision inertia or redundant deliberation, which is constant chewing over the problem to the point where you are chewing over it for so long that you don't make any decision at all. But that is where decision-making gets really difficult, where you have to give up one of those sacred values. And that is a tough ask. Okay, so Hercules finishes this labor. The next one, he has to go to the underworld, correct? Yes, he's he meets Hades and he has to deal with the three-headed dog Cerberus. Yeah. And what was the labor there? What was he what it was what was his mission there? Well, so this sort of takes us full circle. Labor one is is killing the lion, and now we're right back to a kind of another beast. He's he's told by Eurystheus, bring bring the dog back, bring the three-headed dog back that, that guards the underworld. Get him off Hades, who's who's the the lord of the underworld, but bring the dog back alive. So unlike the lion, uh, well, like the lion, he's got to defeat it without weapons. He's not allowed any weapons, but this time he's not allowed to kill it. So, I mean, I wrote this in a very particular way that hasn't necessarily been written this way before. So, you know, often what we do with this 12th labour, we we will ask the prompt, you know, how is this different from labour one? What have we learned? What, what, is, what is Hercules doing that is different with the dog that he didn't do with the lion? And he can't kill. I mean, that's the big one. You can't, you can't just kill it. Yeah. So, well, let's ask you, Brett, you know, how has, how has Hercules changed now? What's... You know, if you were comparing these two labors together, what do you think he's learned? How do you think he's changed? So he's, he's likely he's gained some confidence. He's no he he's, he knows what he's capable of doing, and he, in the process too, he's learned that he can't just rely on brute force. He has to use his mind. He has to use that lateral thinking, sometimes cunning. I think if if this was his first labor, you know, getting the dog, I think his approach would have been just brute force. Uh-huh. I don't. I think he realized that's not going to work here. Like he he has that that wisdom that that's I can't do that here. This isn't going to be the best approach. Yeah, well, he certainly can't kill it. I mean, what is interesting to me about this is that I, he ends up actually stroking the dog. <laughs> you know, he and he he brings it back through the streets of Tyrans and back to Eurystheus and parades the dog. You know, and I think everyone is. I mean, I wrote a short little epilogue about how the people of Tyrans were expecting to be sort of overawed and sort of praise Hercules for bringing the dog back and it would be some kind of amazing parade. But I see Hercules bringing back this dog that he's restrained in quite a, you know, used his physical strength, but for restraint and ends up kind of patting the dog and basically giving it a bit of a cuddle. And this is a dog that has been designed to kill, you know, kill and hate and rip things asunder. And actually in restraining it, you know, Hercules calms it. And with the lion, you know, I, I was cautious to sort of give the view that he felt bad about killing it. And here's he, he's, he's been able to restrain the animal without damaging it, without hurting it, without piercing it, without killing it, parades it through the streets of Tyrians. And both of them I see as kind of wounded animals, wounded beasts that have come back. And actually their walk through the streets of Tyrians is to warn the local populace that actually this, 
this this is this is what wounded people look like that you've put on the front line that have come back from difficult tough times this is not necessarily some major celebration look at the state of us beware take this as a warning you know it's not some great celebration it's not some ticker tape parade it's a this is what the reality of war looks like and this is what the reality of being abused or beaten up or you know going through tough times looks like be warned no yeah you can definitely get jungian with this right it's like the mm-hmm. the, the dog is like the shadow and mm-hmm. you know there's this idea i guess in jung psychology or depth psychology like you had to do shadow work where you you confront your shadow that's sort of the dark side of you and but like in order to you have to like integrate it somehow you can't just beat it down you actually have to do what hercules did restrain it but like pet like kind of they're just being like wait what would we, what would we call this self-compassion maybe mm. that's I, I just came up with that on the fly so what are your thoughts on that well uh, you know i think you know walking into to provocative territory yeah. here but but i mean i'm sure you get this with your podcast you know the name of your your podcast automatically this doesn't preclude the idea that that women would listen to it but for me a lot of what the hercules tale is about is about masculinity it's about masculinity in all its strength and in all its weaknesses because uh, you know Her- hercules's worst points he's displaying what would conventionally be considered masculine attributes but the dark side the violent side the impulsive side the reckless side the inconsiderate side the joy in you know inflicting suffering on other people in violence but there are certain masculine attributes that are very admirable in in the character as well it is a tale about masculinity and it is a tale about trying to control that side of you that is disproportionately hyper masculine but bad but embracing and celebrating those attributes which are masculine and admirable so you know for me that that piece with cerberus is as you say the shadow piece of it, it is a reflection of himself it is a dark side of himself and you know without going too deep into it the fact that he's restrained the dog is you know perhaps that tells us that you know he's starting to get a bit more comfortable with with certain masculine attributes that he can control and be a bit more guarded around all right so he, he completes the 12 labors what happens to him so as you said there's different versions of what happens to him after mm. the 12 labors what what did what path did you take for the after Uh, as i say you know i was less convinced just narratively i mean there's no right or wrong it's a story right but i i found it unconvincing that he would complete the 12 labors and then go on to kill his wife i I thought it was a much more compelling story to tell it the other way where the labors emanate out from having killed his wife and children but then of course you know the weird thing is he completes the labors and you would think okay maybe he's really learned from this but then shortly afterwards he he enters an archery competition where his former teacher, Eurotus, who is a, a bowman that taught Hercules when he was younger, has a competition in which whoever wins the archery competition can have the hand of his daughter, Aeoli. And Hercules has always loved this woman from a very early age, so he enters the competition. Now, un, you know, Eurotus had hoped and thought that the labors would also kill Hercules and that there would be no way that this violent, abusive man that has already killed his entire family would be available to take part in the archery competition. And yet he knows that Hercules is probably a better archer than him. Anyway, long story short, Hercules does indeed enter the competition and does indeed beat Eurotus, who then says, well, actually, I've I've changed it. You can't have my daughter. 
His son, Iphitus, then gets into an argument with Hercules, and tragically, Hercules loses his mind again and ends up killing Eurytus' son, Iphitus, by throwing him off the battlements. So once again, we're kind of back to square one, you know. And for me, that's kind of just, I mean, when I was researching this and looking at this story, I thought, oh, my God, I can't believe he's gone backwards again to this crazy one impulsive act where he lost his mind, you know, perhaps for understandable reasons, but he's gone back to that dark side of masculinity. Maybe he hasn't learned from this and he's become violent again. And now we're back to square one. And now he gets more punishment. And now Hermes' punishment for him is that he has to serve three years as a slave to a Lydian princess on Farley. I mean, so I think a takeaway there for just any, just applying it to our lives or someone you're working with, even if you go through some labor, you think you're done, right? Like, I'm done. Mm-hmm. I, I've got this under control. Like, I, you, you know, people, mm. you know, they go to therapy and they make some progress. Like, hey, my life's great. And then they stop. They stop going to therapy or they stop doing those things they know will keep them in a good place. Man, that can actually bring you back down and you have to start all over again. Yeah, a moment of madness can set you back. As you say, being a human being is work. You know, it's work all the time. You're not off the hook. You've got to be aware of your strengths and weaknesses of it. So you're right, Brett. I think this is this is about, well, yeah, just because you've done these labors doesn't mean you've stopped. You have ongoing work to do and an ongoing responsibility. And yes, you can embrace your masculinity, but be aware of the dark side of it as well. Well, Lawrence, this has been a great conversation. Where can people go to learn more about the book? Well, we have two versions that people can engage with. On our Ground Truth website, we actually have an oral reading of the book. And so people can go to the Ground Truth website and click on Project Heracles, and they will get an oral reading of all 12 labors. You can actually take the labors and do some self-reflective analysis, either with you know, just on your own or with with teams or groups. And as you said, Brett, I think it's got very general applicability to a whole bunch of people. And also we have two versions of the book. We have a slimmer version, which is an A4 kind of glossy version, which has the psychology workbook in it called The Labours of Heracles, which just has the labours. And then I, because I got so interested in it, I wrote a short novella, it's about 20,000 words, which is called The Life and Death of Heracles. So that has the 12 labours plus the things that led up to the labours and the things that emanated after the labours right the way through to the death of Heracles as well. Fantastic. Well, Lawrence Allison, thanks for your time. It's been a pleasure. Thank you so much, Brett. It's great to speak to you again. My guest today was Lawrence Allison. Today we discussed his new project around the 12 labours of Hercules. You can find more information about accessing both the oral and written version of Lawrence's retellings of the labours of Hercules by checking out our show notes at aom.is slash Hercules. Well, that wraps up another edition of the AWIN Podcast. Check out our website at artofmanless.com where you can find our podcast archives as well as thousands of articles that we've written over the years about pretty much anything you think of. And if you'd like to enjoy ad-free episodes of the AWIN Podcast, you can do so on Stitcher Premium. Head over to stitcherpremium.com, sign up, use code MANLESS at checkout for a free month trial. Once you're signed up, download the Stitcher app on Android or iOS and you can start enjoying ad-free episodes of the AWIN Podcast. And if you haven't done so already, I'd appreciate if you take one minute to give us a review on Apple Podcasts or Stitcher. It helps out a lot. If you've done that already, thank you. Please consider sharing the show with a friend or family member who you think we get something out of it. As always, thank you for the continued support. Until next time, it's Brett McKay reminding you to listen to the podcast and put what you've heard into action. Mm-hmm.